Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Iraqi Voices. This is Mohammed Al-Wali. Iraqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Iraqi Voices is produced by 1001 Iraqi Thoughts. Pope Francis' visit to Iraq was an important event not only for Iraq but also globally. Many Christians and Muslims around the world followed the visit and its outcomes closely. It was the first time that a Pope visited Najaf as he met with its most prominent figure, Grand Ayatollah Sistani. I'll be hosting Iraq researcher Dr. Marcina Shamari. Dr. Marcin has obtained her doctoral degree from MIT. Her research focused on the religious authority in Najaf, also known as the Marja'iyya, and its approach to politics. She has written a piece for 1001 Iraqi Thought that summarized the outcome of her doctoral study in addition to another piece upon the arrival of the Pope, in which she talked about the significance of the visit. I'll be asking her to share with us her impressions about the historic visit and talk to us about the role of the Marjaya in Iraq's political and social media and how this role will look like in the future. Welcome, Dr. Marcin. Thank you, Dr. Mohammed. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, let me start with this. A lot has been written about Sistani's visit and your piece for Iraqi thoughts before the Pope's visit has stood out. However, on the plane back to the Vatican, we heard the Pope saying quite astonishing things about Sistani after he met him. He called him wise, great, a man of God, a sage. What did the Pope see in Sistani that made him describe him like that? I can't claim to know what the Pope is thinking when he met Sistani. I can't claim to know what Sistani was thinking when he met with the Pope. But I think the bits of media coverage we get on it, uh, from the video that has no audio that was released, from the photos that we saw, as well as the plane, uh, the discussion on the plane that you just mentioned right now. From that, we get an idea of what the meeting was like and why they had this opinion of each other. And from my perspective, I think it's because for both individuals, it's the first time that they'd met someone who held a job or a position that's so similar to their own. So there's this natural affinity. You know, I think the Pope realizes what Iraq has been through for the past two decades, essentially, and what Sistani has seen and how he's shepherded Iraq through that. And I think he appreciates the difficult job. So describing him as a wise man, a great man, a man of God makes sense in this context. And I mean, Pope Francis himself is very well known for having this social activism, for being a supporter of the poor and the oppressed. And so I think there's a lot of affinity and a lot that they have in common. So Sistani's statement called upon peace and stability in the region, and he also talked about ending embargoes, wars, and injustice. Um, although his statement seems generic, we know that Sistani usually chooses the wording of his statements very wisely, and uh, there have been uh, many interpretations about what he meant. Given that you follow the Marjaya closely, um, what do you read into the, his statements, basically? Um, do you think that there are any other messages beyond what we basically read? I, I think your description of it as generic is correct, but it's also not a bad thing for it to be a generic statement. 
you know, before the statement was released, people were asking me, oh, what will Sistani's office say? What will it be like? And you could almost script out what was going to be said because you can expect what kind of message would be delivered. So it's not surprising at all in many ways, but I really don't think that's a bad thing at all. Um, this meeting isn't supposed to be revolutionary in the sense of enacting political change or, you know, completely changing uh, everything about Iraqi society or the religious establishment's relationship with society. It's not meant to do anything of that. It's symbolic and to an extent being a symbolic visit is enough. Now, that being said, there were a few interesting things in the statement that I thought about. And one of them to me is that he singles out the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause in the statement. And, you know, more and more, it's been singled out less by prominent figures in the Middle East. And the other really interesting thing is that he mentions economic sanctions, presumably on Iran. And those two, from a political perspective, stood out to me. Then other than that, he mentions, and this is also something that was quite expected, he singles out the importance of the Iraqi Christian community and that they should live in peace like other Iraqis. And this is something that's particularly directed at the Pope's visit. And, you know, he ended it very normally, thank the Pope for the visit, for coming all the way to Najaf. So it's it's not surprising, but I think we do need this kind of statement to really solidify this visit, to kind of put a seal on it, to say this is a memento from this historical occasion. So um, you made a few interesting points, actually, in both of your pieces for Iraqi thoughts, and I wanted to talk to you about that. First, uh, let's talk a little bit about institutions. Can you give us an overview about what institutions are? I mean, um, people usually um, tend to confuse institutions with organizations. Furthermore, um, when we look at Najaf, basically it's the center of Shia faith and there are several maraja, several religious authorities uh, in Najaf and each uh, marja'iya has its own offices and linked organizations and schools. Um, many of them inside Iraq, and, but also lots of them uh, around the world, actually. And unlike the Vatican, for instance, the seminary, the Shia seminary, the Hausa, is not centralized. Um, there isn't any specific central administration that basically runs Najaf, just like we would have with the Vatican, for instance. But nevertheless, we still talk about Najaf collectively as an institution. So my question to you, how does it really work? Um, I think this is a really important question, and I'm so glad you raised it, because I think in a lot of the writing we do and a lot of the dialogues we have, we really use different words to mean the same thing. And there's a lot of confusion surrounding, you know, what is a hausa? What is a marja'iya? And so I think really distilling what we're talking about is very important. But it also goes to show that it's understandable that we had to use a word like institution or religious establishment to describe this entity that we're talking about. So to begin with, you know, you see people saying the hausa and the hausa just, just refers to seminaries, essentially nothing more than seminaries. And like you mentioned, seminaries don't just exist in Najaf. They exist throughout the Shia world. And you hear people saying Marja'iya, and that's the elite uh, set of clerics who are Sistani's office and the offices of other important clerics. And there are Maraja throughout the world as well. So there's a lot of terms here. And when I speak about the establishment or the institution, I do differentiate it from an organization precisely because I am not only talking about the office of Sistani, for example. I'm talking about this 
whole set of seminaries, clerical offices, libraries, charities, shrines, mosques that have a shared history, a shared mission, and a shared narrative, um, and that don't always have aligning goals, but have a similar message at the end of the day. And it's really a way to try to include various actors and to reveal the complexity of the religious establishment. And I always say when I speak about Najaf, I say the Shia religious establishment of Iraq. I try to differentiate that from what's going on outside of Iraq while recognizing that Sistani and other important clerics have, have important reach outside of the borders of, of Iraq. And another key point that you mentioned here is the Catholic Church. So, Really interestingly, you see a lot of comparisons being made between Catholicism as an religious institution or religious organization and between Shia Islam. And it's exactly like you said. The problem with making this comparison is that the religious establishment isn't as centralized in the same way that the Catholic Church is. But it goes beyond centralization. It's also an issue of how bureaucratized or standardized it is. This comparison tends to be made because they both are hierarchical structures. And by that, I mean you have people who occupy certain positions who have ranks and titles associated with those positions. And I think that obscures the, the fact that the standardization, the bureaucratization isn't the same. And so you look at the religious establishment, you look at the way the houses run, and there's not the same professionalization of staff, there's not the same emphasis on the demarcation of jurisdiction in terms of performing religious duties. So it's a different kind of institution. Um, they're just, they're different. And that really is what distinguishes Najaf, but I think that's also what makes people think of it uh, as somewhat similar to the Catholic Church. So you distinguish between the person and institution of Sistani. Where do you see the difference? And in a more direct term, um, does Sistani, for instance, have his own unique approach on how to play a religious, social, and political role, um, of course, in a balanced way? Or do you think that his approach is something that distinguishes Najaf in general? And also, um, to what extent uh, was Sistani able to institutionalize his model of state-religion relationship in a way that could have the potential, for instance, uh, to continue even after he passes away? So in my piece, the reason I distinguished between the person of Sistani and the institution of the religious establishment, or in this sense, the Marjaya, is because as the preparations were happening for that meeting and as everyone's eyes was on Najaf, a lot of the attention was on Sistani and his crucial role in the last two decades of Iraqi history in particular. And as I reflected on that, and based on what I know of Iraqi history, I wondered if it was Sistani himself as an individual that has certain characteristics that made him ideally suited uh, to this position in this time period, or whether it was the religious establishment of Najaf that would have produced a figure who was ideally placed to take on this challenge at this time. And the more I think about it and examine Iraqi history, the more I think it's the latter. And I think this doesn't mean that Sistani isn't important or that he doesn't deserve the praise that was given to him or that he didn't play a crucial role. All of that is certainly true. But I think Sistani is a product of an institution that creates a certain mold of elite cleric that will behave in a pretty systematic way. 
And in that way, you know, people say about Najaf, it's the quietest school. It's the one that doesn't get involved in politics, right? But actually, if you look at the history of clerics in Sistani's position, they're not really quietists. That term is really overused and it really obscures the depth and the complexity of clerical behavior in times of political instability, in times of protests, for example, or regime change. And really what the religious establishment does is it creates this figure through years of studying and training and being told that you are there to serve the community to make sure that things are stable to be a as they say a safety valve during crises years of that kind of training years of that kind of socialization will likely produce similar kinds of figures at the top who in times of crises will react not by trying to take one side or another, but by trying to reach the safest, the most stable outcome possible while making sure that there is no severe repercussions for the religious community. So by that, I mean, if you even examine Sistani's most recent set of sermons concerning the protests in, in October of 2019 and onwards, um, the way he, his representatives react to that and the way his office reacts to that is really by trying to remind people of the sanctity of the constitution of the electoral system of the law while recognizing the individual rights of Iraqis and their freedom of speech. So he's very much a stabilizing force, but that's not because he, as an individual, is naturally a more stabilizing force than anything Najaf could have come up with. It's that Najaf creates these stabilizing forces. And, you know, we can't really talk about what the counterfactual of someone other than Sistani being the head of the religious establishment with certainty, but we can examine Iraqi history and say that there is a specific mold of cleric that is produced. Thanks a lot for this uh, explanation. Yeah, I mean, uh, when we look at uh, the role of Sistani, uh, we can definitely describe it as stabilizing. And uh, it's interesting also that we always hear people either complaining about too much involvement of Najaf in politics or uh, many of them, whenever a problem happens uh, in in Iraq politically, um, they just call upon the Marjaya to resolve it. Uh, whereas we see that Sistani is basically very deliberate about uh, when to intervene and when basically to hold back. But then there are also many worries about the continuation of Najaf's leadership after the passing away of Sistani. And uh, there are also many speculations about succession. And uh, when you look at it, uh, you see that only few of them are really informed. Um, usually the experts uh, abstain from making any speculations. But nevertheless, it's an important question. So what can you share with us that helps us basically navigate it? And uh, how should we think about the issue of success in Najaf? I mean, it's exactly as I said before. I can't predict the future, but I can look to the past and learn from it. And when I look to the past, I see that there is a shared commonality between people who occupy this position. And so I think that Sistani is not so different from his predecessor and that his successor will not be very different from him. But in terms of how is the successor going to be selected, who is it going to be? How do we think about it? I think there are three things that merit mentioning here. The first is that Sistani's immediate successor is likely to be a short-term candidate, followed by someone who will be a more longer-term successor, simply because of the age structure of the religious establishment and the clerics who are who are likely to succeed Sistani all happen to be people who are older 
and some are even older than Sistani himself. And we've had this happen in the Hausa before, where you have a very short term successor to the to the elite cleric who comes and then someone else follows him. So the crucial question here, um, as has been said to me by people within the Hausa, is not who is Sistani's successor, but who will succeed that successor. And going off of that point, I think it's also important to mention that this successor will be shaped by a political climate that he was raised in, that he experienced, and this is likely to be the political climate of the former regime, which creates a certain fear of the state's intrusion into religion, religion, and into into the house and the religious establishment. So that will also go into shaping the uh, the kind of cleric that will be chosen. So we have to keep that in mind, and that also ties into the fact that elite clerics tend to be a few generations older than the average Iraqi, and so. Have have different views towards politics and towards the relationship with the state. Um, and that's just important to keep in mind from a political perspective. And the final point is that one of the things that we are seeing that is actually quite new when you talk about institutions and organizations, and that's happened quite recently, is that because of the way it's so much easier to communicate in the contemporary era in the modern world, it's become a new practice that even when a prominent cleric passes away, there develops a organization or institution, a foundation around them, um, around their name that's taken up by people who are close to them, be it their students or their family. It tends to have, you know, charitable branches. It has academic branches and the like, but it still holds the authority and the influence of that person's name. And so that's one thing that will be different and that is different now than it was, say, 30 years ago, but it's something that we will have to contend with, and it will be something that will be interesting to see how Sistani's successors will interact with the organization that will likely develop around Sistani's office after he passes away. Yeah, I mean, the Marjaya in Iraq uh, is definitely one of the powerhouses and had lots of influence, and uh, I think uh, when I listen to uh, what you are saying, and then compare it uh, to what usually um, think tanks uh, talk about, uh, you can sort of see this disparity. And that disparity, I think, exists because there haven't been um, enough research like yours that basically goes deeper into the Marjaya as an institution, its political and historical role. Thank you for joining us and uh, looking forward to discuss new issues on Iraq in a new episode of uh, Iraqi Voices. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.